Hey, good morning to you. How are you all? Good. Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 is where we're going to be today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I'm sure uh, you could kind of just search Ecclesiastes in your phone and pull something up. We've also got some little borrow Bibles in the back that uh, we're going to be on page 320 today. Well, two decades ago, a team of sociologists banded together, kind of like a social science Avengers, to undertake a study unlike anything else to date. Between the years of 2001 and 2005, they conducted in-depth interviews with more than 3,300 Americans, all between the ages of 13 and 17. Uh, Very quickly, that is most of the people in this room. Like you and your peers were part of this interview process. 2001 to 2005, uh, between the ages of 13 and 17. So they did these 3,300 polls and interviews, all with the goal of being able to provide hard data, statistics, and even concluding hypotheses about American teenagers' religious identity. Unlike anything that ever been done before, they actually went out and let's get actually hard science of what is the way that this kind of you know, upcoming generation, the way that they relate to these ideas of spirituality and religion. They published their findings a few years later in a book called Soul Searching, Religion and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And this book provided a, well, I would not recommend buying it. It's, it's science. It's just boring stats uh, with a couple of little like introductory notes at the beginning and the end, but fascinating all the same for those of us that like this kind of stuff. The wealth of insights that they found was they saw this generation that so many of uh, our generation, for me being a part of this, that we were seen as kind of increasingly irreligious and secularized. Through these polls, what they found is this is not actually the case at all. They were surprised to find that only 16% of uh, adolescents in this time identified as non-religious. The overwhelming majority had some religious faith framework. But the biggest finding that they found, the one that sent shockwaves through American Christianity, what spawned articles and podcasts and grants for continued research was, in their words, it's in the concluding research out of all of those studies, they found, it is not so much that Christianity in the United States is being secularized. Rather, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith. With only three weeks left in our spring series, Smoke and Mirrors, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Today we're looking at, as the, the preacher, the primary voice of the book, the deconstructor as we've been calling him, he sets his eyes on a new area of investigation under the sun. You see, the past six weeks, he's been looking at things like wealth or consumerism, pleasure, work, career, wisdom, all of these big drivers for life in Los Angeles. And what he has found every single time after the, post, uh, the past six weeks is all is vanity. It's all fleeting. It's all illusory. It's all smoke and mirrors. But today, the deconstructor, like those super sociologists, turns his attention to religious and the spirituality of of the life under the sun. And what the deconstructor finds is a similar colonizing, displacing, a smoke and mirrors faith. Or as 17th century, 17th century, excuse me, theologian John Trapp wrote in his commentary on what we're about to read today. He said, wouldst thou seek Uh, Or wouldst thou see more of the world's vanity than hitherto hath been discoursed, get thee to a sanctuary. 
17th century, reflecting on what the deconstructor writes here, says, you want to find more vanity, more smoke and mirrors than we've talked about so far. Get your butt to church, in the words of Change the Rapper. Would you join me in standing as we read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today? For those of you that are able, we stand when we read from the scriptures as a community. We identify that when we gather on a weekly basis around the scriptures, that this is when God speaks to us. And so we want to carve uh, ears into our head. We want to open and pay attention. And so we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 7. And then we're going to turn the page or uh, scroll really quickly to chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. So we're going to do a little bit of five, a little bit of chapter eight today, and then we're going to kind of put those together. Sound good? All right, let's read from Ecclesiastes chapter five, beginning in verse one. The deconstructor says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much uh, business or busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So let not your mouth lead you into sin and don't say before the messenger that it was just a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, there is smoke and mirrors. But God is the one who you must fear. And I'll switch over to chapter eight, beginning in verse two. The deconstructor picks up and says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for the king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to the king, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he, man, does not know what he is to be, for... Who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and they got praised in the city where they had done such things, but... This, they also are smoke and mirrors. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will they prolong their days like a shadow because they do not, he does not fear God before God. There is a vanity, there is a smoke and mirrors that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, this also is vanity, it's smoke and mirrors. And I commend joy, 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with them in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ecclesiastes once again and for, uh, God, this journey through this book over the past few weeks. As we uh, begin our descent into the closing of the book, we pray that the wisdom that the deconstructor calls us to would work its way into our lives and specifically today as he looks at, God, the way that we relate to you, that his words might challenge and confront us and that we might investigate uh, exactly how we do perceive you and, and what that means for our lives. You know, we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. So let's first deal with the tension of the opening quote. What was that colonizing and displacing religious faith? This thing that was taking over and pushing Christianity out. Now, it's not another organized religion, but it is that Christianity is, as the full quote would say, you can see behind me, it is not so much that Christianity in the United States is being secularized, rather, and here it is, more subtly, Either Christianity is at least degenerating into a pathetic version of itself, or more significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith. Dr. George Barna, in his follow-up of the research in 2021, he concluded it this way, simply and objectively stated, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out. This de-evolution, devolving of the Christian faith, this mutation of the Christian faith is a belief system that the researchers, Christian Smith and uh, Melinda Lundquist-Denton, uh, all of the, this team, the way that they coined what they found within our, this coming generation, the, this, this uh, pathetic version of Christianity, as they coined it was, you'll see behind me, moralistic therapeutic deism. What they found in 2021, the American Worldview interview, once they were able to put language to these, this belief system as moralistic therapeutic deism, they found that almost the majority of emerging adults are more likely to embrace this kind of worldview than Christianity, than secularism, than post-modernity, and then even Marxism. For everybody's fear about critical race theory and Marxism, it's actually moralistic therapeutic deism that is far more prevalent within emerging adults today. So what is moralistic therapeutic deism? Let's just break it down by its words. First, moralistic. This is a belief system that most of us hold that the primary purpose of all religions is about being a good person, about being a kind person, about being a, 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 a moral person. But what's interesting about the moralism of moralistic therapeutic deism is that it's largely relative. That the morals that are being given to you by whatever religious system you have are largely relative. As long as you have something, that's the basis of it. Which grows and flows out of the second portion of being not just moralistic, but therapeutic. That is that if the purpose of religion is some kind of morality, that the end goal of religion is a therapeutic, uh, you finding a boosting of your self-esteem. You being able to feel better about yourself. 
That this is the end goal of what religion is meant to bring. And then finally, it's deist. Deist meaning that God is, that there's some kind of like a clockmaker, that he has whipped up creation, but now stands off at a distant, largely unconnected to creation. Maybe invited in and brought in from time to time, but really isn't at work. He's distant and, and by and large holds no demands for each individual human. Uh, you can see this play out in one of the teenagers interviewed for their studies. Um, it definitely reads like an, a teenager. Morals play a large part in religion. Morals are good if they're healthy for society, like Christianity, which is all I know. The values you get from like the Ten Commandments. You can see the teenager right there. I think every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're Muslim, then, that's, then Islam is the way for you. If you're Jewish, well, that's great too. If you're Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. Notice, what's the underlying buildup of what is the primary guiding framework for religion? Therapeutic. It's whatever's good for you. Morals, for sure, but at the end of the day, what you pick, what religion, is not predicated on any truth claims, any historicity, anything else. It's largely, you figure out whatever Duplo Lego block makes you feel good for you. So if you're Islam, then must be, must, if you're Jewish, well, that's good too. Whatever it is, if you're, you were raised Christian, that's clicking. Gone is any appeal to a larger faith system that is actually predicated in truth claims. And even more than that, a morality that actually in many ways comes up against the therapeutic nature of something. And largely it's predicated on whatever is good for you. In a follow-up study that was published last year, they continued their study finding that, that this moralistic therapeutic deism, what they found 22 uh, decades ago, 20 years ago, is that now as we found what you, whatever you want to call that deconstruction or just a movement of a lot of people out of the church, by and large, most of the people that have made that movement, what they have deconstructed is not any actual deep Christian faith, but rather they deconstructed moralistic therapeutic deism with a Christian mask on. So the whole point was, as they interviewed people that have walked out of the church, what they found was not animosity directed at God, but indifference. They didn't leave the church because they hated God. They left the church because they didn't need him. Because that was the primary framework they were given for who God is and how he relates to them. And so we have a generation here that has largely, been, largely found God as just unnecessary. And what's interesting is, is not only did that lead to a lot of people that have left the church, but for those that stayed within Christianity, hi, how are you all this morning? This is what they found within us. Is for those that have stayed within the church, they grew, even in the midst of identifying as Christian, to see God as increasingly remote. That's that deist stuff. God's out there. He doesn't really have any big demands. My experience of him is largely through just kind of, you know, maybe reading the Bible every now and then and going to church. But as far as a personal experience of him, that, no, that's out there. So increasingly remote, but at the same time, highly personalized to meet my needs and to be the kind of God that I want him to be. And so there's the therapeutic stuff here. So they identified and named this next stage of moralistic therapeutic deism as back pocket God. That God is like a little smartphone app that we can carry with us in our back pocket, that he exerts very little power or influence, but is readily accessible. He makes few demands on us. He's easily controlled, personalized, and tailored to my experiences and, and how I want to live, but useful, but only in limited ways. That God, within this framework, for most who operate and identify as a Christian who is an emerging adult today, they see their relationship to God, to religion, to spirituality as kind of a cosmic headspace app, your divine Peloton instructor, your spiritual TED talk, or your cosmic task rabbit. 
that is on my terms and my way of relating, that whatever divinity is in there, I'm the one who sets the expectations here, not him. This is how the majority of us operate, and this is the science now shows it. We can't get away from it. Now, I bring all this to not be alarmist and like, the church is falling apart. What are we going to, like, that's not it at all, this alarm, but just simply to say, here we are in a series about deconstructing Los Angeles with this book, and today we need to take a moment to deconstruct the faith of many Angelinos, including ourselves. We belong to a generation that we've been raised to see God as handy more than holy. We've been raised to see God as useful and convenient and easily handled, but then just as easily put away with any claims that he might make on us. And so as we read the deconstructor's words today and understand what he's getting at, we find that he's reading us. I found that he's reading me. I have found that this week in preparation for teaching, this has been far and above the most convicting passage of our series so far. And so if you are here and you identify as a Christian today, my ask of you would be, would you invite the deconstructor, the words of scripture to poke around and challenge the ways that you relate to God today? And similarly, if you're here and you don't identify as a Christian, or you're somewhere on that spectrum, I would invite you today just to reflect on the deconstructor's words. I think you might find yourself agreeing with many of the things that the deconstructor hates about religion and spirituality But my ask is that you might also listen for his invitation of how do we move forward out of this. So that being said, why don't you, if you have your Bibles there, look back with me in chapter 5, verse 1, where the deconstructor begins to look his attention towards this next step of smoke and mirrors. And specifically what he finds is as he goes into the house of God, we're going to come back to guarding your steps and drawing near to listen, but it's specifically this, what does he notice? The offering of the sacrifice of fools in the house of God. Now, the house of God would have been the temple in Jerusalem in his day. For us, post-New Testament, the modern equivalent was right here, right now. When the church gathers, the early church understanding, the Christian understanding is this is the house of God. When the people of Jesus are gathered around the scriptures and around the table. And what he finds when he comes to church, you could say, is he finds the sacrifice of fools. He finds foolish worship. What he calls in verse 7 of chapter 5, vanity. Smoke and mirrors worship is what he finds here. So the sacrifice, you think of the sacrificial system of people bringing like lambs and goats and wine and bread and stuff. The whole point is all of that operation is part of of worship. And so he's identifying people coming to church, bringing themselves, whether that's their words or actual sacrifices. And what he finds is it's foolishness. It's smoke and mirrors. It's fleeting and illusory. Why? In verses two through four of chapter five. He says their worship is defined by, it is identified through rash, hasty, long-winded prayers and words. Singing songs and praying, but the whole point is they don't actually reflect any change or obedience in people's lives. What he says is they don't pay what they vow. The idea is they're coming to work and they're singing, oh, how we love you. And they're like, oh, God, I love you. And then Monday through Saturday, the rest of the week doesn't have any difference on that. They come forward and they, they take from communion and they're identifying with Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And This is my king. This is my salvation. This is my life. And then the rest of their week doesn't show any different. He says, this is smoke and mirrors. Their worship, their identification here is fleeting. And, and more than that, they are taking the name of God in vain to go back to the Ten Commandments. This isn't about you, you know, being in traffic. This is about you taking the name of belonging to God and not actually living that way. 
They live with this sort of uh, spirituality when they come into the house of God. They're talking about dreams and spiritual talk and visions and things that God's doing within them. And yet, you know, God told me. They've got all of this when they're in the church space. And then they go back into the rest of their week and nothing changes. And even more than that, when they're challenged, as verse 6 says, when they're challenged on this smoke and mirrors worship, they tell the messenger, the priest, or today, they tell the pastor, like, oh, it's only a mistake. They're, they're blowing off any correction, any like, hey, you say this on Sunday, you say this at discipleship group, and that I've noticed this pattern within your life. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They blow it off. It was a mistake. Yeah, I know, I know, I saw that. I caught it. This is what the kind of thing that he looks at and goes, this is, this is the most vanity that I've seen so far. Is these people who are identifying and, and, and proclaiming this one thing with their worship and, and yet showing something entirely different. If you jump over to chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, he continues and picks this up. He talks about the wicked. These people that died and they were buried and their funeral was incredible. It was held at, at the church and everybody was talking about how, how they used to sing the loudest and they would lead worship and they were always there at church contributing and serving. But they just, the deconstructor goes, no, man, we, we saw their lives. They just ramped up hundreds of sins, like thousands of sins is what he says. And then they would come into church and all kind of pretending like I'm getting away with this. The deconstructor says the fact that, that vengeance was not executed speedily. The whole point is these wicked worshipers, they take God's patience and forbearance as license for them to sin all the more. And they come into church every single week with all of this behind them and they're like, oh no, it's fine. I, I'm just sitting with this and I mean, as I'm reflecting, reading over this week, I'm like, so th this was written a thousand, thousands of years ago and not like, you know, this past week. As we look over the churches of Los Angeles, those who identify as Christians within our city, as we look at collective and we look around the room, as we look at ourselves, there is a warped shape of worship that the deconstructor is pointing at here that you, you can't dodge, that you have to let confront you in order to actually say that you have ears and you're listening. Vinoth Ramachandra is a Sri Lankan uh, theologian with a PhD in nuclear engineering, so you know he's smarter than everyone else in the room, except for maybe Andrew Pan. He wrote a book called Gods That Fail. On page 18, he wrote this. He said, The narcissistic, self-absorbed church thus develops by degrees to respond to the narcissistic culture. Mimicking that culture in its move from word to image, from passion for truth and righteousness to cultivating intimacy and good feelings, from exposition, that is like opening up of scripture, to entertainment, from integrity and faithfulness to novelty and what's new and shiny, from action to spectacle. Smoke and mirrors worship is the worship that develops within a context that is increasingly narcissistic and individualistic and moral therapeutic deism is the fruit of that sort of a culture. And so if we've got this kind of purpose in worship, this kind of posture within our worship, the question would be not necessarily first and foremost, how do I relate to God, but how do I relate to myself? If I bring my posture on Sundays, understanding that what this time is for, the primary purpose of coming into the house of God, of gathering with the people of God, is rather than worship and obedience, a revolving around myself and my, my ego being stroked, my wants being met, and me feeling like I've rightly expressed my devotion and love. 
We have wired worship around ourselves and taken God off the center of it. And as the deconstructor says in chapter five, verse five, if that's your posture in worship, it'd be better for you just to shut up. Five, verse five, to spend your Sunday somewhere else, to quit pretending and joking like this is, you're actually coming here to worship and obey and serve the living God. You've come here for yourself. Now, lest you think that I or maybe the deconstructor is being overly hard, both God and Jesus ramp up the language even more. God speaking through Amos chapter five, dealing with smoke and mirrors worship. Listen, as God speaks, he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you come, you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. So obviously dealing within the sacrificial system. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen to them. Stop singing to me, but, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I, I love worship, the sacrificial system, and you bringing worship in per absolute 100%. But without, with the absence of righteousness and justice being actively obeyed and carried out in your life, it's not that they're neutral to me. They are wicked to me. Jesus in Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. You are religious and spiritual, and you come up and you sing the songs and raise your hands in worship. But within, you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Worship, prayer, sacrifice, gathering and coming into the house of God with the gathered people of God. These are vital parts of faith. But in the absence of obedience, throughout the scriptures we find that it's not just these are neutral, but they are foolish and they're, they're, they're wicked. First uh, Samuel 15 says that to obey is better than to sacrifice. That that's what God's getting at. That's his desire is that worship is meant to spin up our hearts actually out into something. A greater life of dedication and worship and obedience of justice and righteousness rather than it becoming centered around ourselves. And so this smoke and mirrors worship revolves largely out of a narcissistic culture, one of moralistic therapeutic deism, where worship revolves around us with God once again being seen as the handy, the helpful butler, rather than the holy center of what gathers and brings us together. So deep breath. It's okay, we're here. This, this is what I mean when I, when I talked to you about a moment ago, that this has been the most convicting passage of the series so far as I reflect on my own posture, as I drive in on Sundays, as my way of relating. And I, I don't know if you sense this within yourself as well, but I would entreat you, let's continue to lean in and let the deconstructor continue with his words. In chapter eight, verse two, the deconstructor seemed like he's completely changing his, his pace, didn't he? Like, we're like, fear God, don't worship like a dummy. And then like, in a minute, they'll talk about the wicked people, you know, that worship. But then he's just like, also, when you're hanging out with the king, like, you be good, be on your best behavior. It's like, what are you talking about here? I think what's going on here is, is what we could call kind of like the royalty test. Is that when, in his day, when you get yourself an audience, you go into the presence of royalty, as Ice Cube put it, you check yourself before you wreck yourself. 
to go into the posture of royalty is their word is supreme. He does whatever he pleases as the deconstructor says. And this is true even with when you find yourself in the company of maybe your boss or a politician, not on Twitter, but actually before them. You may do something stupid, or, but you, you're, you know full well what the implications will be. There is a clear sense of, of right and wrong, respectful and reverent versus disrespectful, or even within Los Angeles royalty. Uh, my wife and I, a couple months ago, went to Gracias Madre over in West Hollywood. It's like a vegan Mexican place, which I'm just, mushroom al pastor, I'm just, maybe. You might like it. I, I really enjoyed it, but we'll leave that there for you. So anyway, the whole point was, as me and Aaron were sitting here eating our, our you know, vegan cheese nachos and stuff, we're talking, and so Aaron's facing towards the back of the, the spot, and she's like, okay, don't look now, but I'm like 95% sure that Alicia Keys is like two tables over. And, I'm... <laughs> and so we're like looking at Alicia Keys' Instagram, and she posted like three hours ago, and it's like the same outfit as like, and I'm like, oh my it's Alicia Keys, right? So Aaron comes over and my side of the booth so we can take like a selfie, like date night selfie, but it's like 100% like <laughs> taking a pits like the half of my head and like Alicia Keys. And um, so she gets up to leave and it was the most like this wave over the room of like these like hushed, like is that Alicia Keys? Oh my gosh. Like people are like all talking and like watching and there's like this quiet like awe like, as she, like, walks out and everybody's just, like, and then as she leaves, like, the room comes back to normal life, right? Da, 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 chattering. Like, there's this holiness to Alicia Keys. Maybe it's not the right word. But I, the whole point that I, in thinking about this, Alicia, is, like, when we were in, the po- like, the posture of someone who has power, even by human measure of it, there is, like, this, this pro- like, this just, you, you can't help it. It's, like, the common thing that happens. <gasps> it's them. Oh, my gosh. And, like, you don't want to, like, and even if you are bold enough to go talk to them, like, maybe I'm, like, Hey, Alicia Keys, you want to give to my church? Like, you know, you want to, like, come on down, you can lead worship. Like, even if I was going to try to do that, like, the amount of, like, like, okay, like, my shirt on, and I'm just like, oh, hey, like, I would, like, be so humble, and, like, right, like, I want to, like, and, and so the whole thing is the deconstructor's kind of going, hey, this is the common way you relate to those who have power within a human level, but human's power over men is what he says. But what's surprising in verse 8, he says, is even the royalty, whether it's Elisha Keys or the king in ancient Israel, doesn't have any power over death. No power to retain the spirit, as he says. And so in this kind of the royalty test, the royalty measure, I, I think what the deconstructor is saying is, look, that's just common sense in the way that you relate to like human power. Where do you find the arrogance to treat the king of creation the way that you do? Like, you, you, you go before the king, and you, but where do you get the arrogance to stroll before the creator, the most high God, and to think you've got him in your back pocket? That you can blow off the vows that you make to him, that you can come in and sing songs all about him and proclaim to be part of his faithful, you know, people, and then go about the rest of your week and just think that nothing's going to catch up with that. Where, where does that come from? You don't do that with anyone, any other level of power within your life, so where does that come from? The deconstructor calls us back to treating God like God. To recapture that sense of holiness, the great otherness of who it is that we're actually identifying and saying, oh, this is who's meeting us when we gather here together. This phrase in chapter 5, verse 7, but God is the one that you must fear. 
Now, fear of God is a dynamic theme of scripture that we could spend the whole time kind of detailing how nuanced this theme is. So just a couple of thoughts that we find within the text today. One of the parts of what it means to fear God is an awareness of the implications of life apart from him. Far more than being afraid of God, there is a fear of an afraidness of the absence, the lack, the rejection of him. As chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 that we saw, though someone may sin a hundred times and their life seemingly goes good for them, the one who fears the Lord, it will go well for them because they're, 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 they're living within the right sense of where my life's trajectory is going. They see that even though things go great for the person who sins a hundred times over, that actually their life will not go well for them in the long run. There is a trajectory that will lead to their life being like a shadow because they don't fear God. So one aspect of what it means to fear God is a heightened awareness at the eventual implications of our rejection of him. As as Paul wrote in Romans chapter three, the wages of sin is death. So even though things may be going great, like the wicked who go to church and they think that they're fooling everyone, the one who fears God pays very close attention to the posture and the step and the way that they're moving through their lives. And when they step into sin, because they will, the whole point here is not perfection, but a posture before God, is that when they do, that is not something they blow off, but it's something that leads them back to the house of God, not just to excuse it and say it was a mistake, but to own up because they see the trajectory, the fear of God of where that might lead which is apart from life. So the one aspect of the fear of God is this heightened awareness at the direction of that. But more than just humble awareness at life's trajectory, fear of God is also a life that revolves around who God is and what God has done. To step out of Ecclesiastes for a second and to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses gives us what most would agree is the best kind of through line for understanding the fear of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses, in his big sermon to Israel before they take the promised land, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He's not partial. He doesn't take a bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. Love the immigrant, therefore, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Now watch how he defines and and buries out what that is. You shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name shall you swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great things that your eyes has seen. A posture of fear of God is a life that is motivated out of who God is and what he's done rather than a life that relates to God largely around who I am and what I want to do. And so for Israel, what Moses is building up to is they're about to go into the promised land. As he's talking about Israel, he goes, you guys just came out of like, you know, Prince of Egypt, Exodus, right? You guys have been led through the Red Sea. You guys saw all the plagues as God has broken down Egypt to deliver you from slavery and now has brought you to the promised land. And here you go, you're about to go in. And so live in light of who God is, great and mighty and all of that language, the God of God and Lord of Lords, the creator of all things. Live in light of that's the God who you you know, and in light of what he has done. He is the God that broke the chain of slavery, that he cared for you when you were immigrants. And so guess what? That now radically shapes the way that you relate to the immigrants and those around you. The fear of the Lord is a life that is centered around who God is and what he's done. 
And now what this means as we move into the other side, the New Testament, and the story for us here is that we not only have to, uh, the chance to look back on the story of Israel coming out of the Exodus, but for us on the other side of Easter Sunday and the resurrection is we have these breakthrough news about who God is and what he's done, not just through the stories of Israel, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we have a God who is not just the creator of all things, but this God who is this community of love, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son took on flesh and became human to live within the smoke and mirrors, the vanity, chaos, mess of this world. To reclaim us, to make us new, to provide for us the forgiveness of sins and resurrection life. To send the Spirit who indwells and empowers and pushes us into a bit. Like, this is the whole story of what the church gathers around, is who Jesus is and what he's done. And so the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is not something you move on from, but it's something that in light of Jesus actually moves us even further. A deep like reverence of, oh my gosh, have goodness, goodness me, of the God who is the God who, who not only is the creator of all things, but has, has bowed down to know me and to embrace me and to receive me to die for me, to take my sins and to give me his righteousness, to shape me into a new kind of human and that in no matter what my life goes through, the resurrection hope and a renewed creation, this is the God that I'm centering my life around. And so therein is the, the absolute patheticness of moralistic therapeutic deism in comparison to this. Moralistic therapeutic deism which revolves around you and your stupid wants and desires. You want, you, I want a God that revolves around my, I have the dumbest, I want the dumbest things. I want things all the time. And then I get them and time and again, it's, it's like as soon as I get it, no, I didn't want this. I'm, I'm, I'm so frustrated, I spent all this time chasing after it. See, the thing that I don't want is, 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 a, is a cosmic butler who just gives me whatever I want. That could be the greatest judgment in the world as seen in Jafar in Aladdin. <laughs> Speaking of genies right, is the very things that we're like, we just keep chasing after more and more and it becomes the, for God to be this God that revolves around you and is therapeutic towards you and distant but only in the things that you want is, is the greatest curse that you could have. And this is why so many walk away from it is because it's pathetic. On the other side of that, what we stand against is saying the call out of narcissism, the call out of your individualism, the call out of your simple way of thinking about God, that you need a God that is wholly other, a God that is the creator that you trust and receive, and a God that has revealed himself, not just in simple platitudes and moralisms, but in resurrection life and in incarnation. That is a God that's worth giving your life to. As Eugene Peterson puts it in his book, Subversive Spirituality, he says, it is necessary if we're going to live a truly Christian life and not just use the word Christian to disguise our narcissistic attempts at spirituality without worshiping God and without being addressed by God. It is necessary to return to square one, to adore and listen to God. Given our vulnerability to every latest edition of journalistic spirituality, Daily reorientation to the truth revealed in Jesus and attested in scripture is required. And I love this. A daily return to a condition of not knowing and non-achievement is required. Moralistic therapeutic deism is predicated on the fact that you know everything and what you need is just somebody to kind of give you a little bit of encouragement in that. And moralistic therapeutic deism 
is predicated on the fact that if you live within that good way, then like, sure, heaven, you go to heaven when you die, whatever place that is. But the way of receiving from who Jesus is and this standing in, in fear of God, this reverent awe, is this posture of not knowing and non-achievement, which is precisely what the deconstructor advises in the final verses of chapter eight that we looked at. See, in 8.14, we dealt with this non-achievement because what does the deconstructor say other than your life is a gift? Enjoy and receive your life as something given to you by God. Your life, and even more than that in Christ, your salvation, your very resurrection life is not something you possess. It's not something you achieve. It's not something you've earned. Everything that you have is is 100% gift from God. And so this is what then like sets you up with fear of God is you just live your life with an awe-filled reception of grace. I can't believe it. I'm going through my day and I, I'm, I'm like, I hate my job, but I'm like, I can't believe it. I have a job. I'm changing diapers. I'm like, I can't believe it. I have a baby. Like this awe-filled, this is the gift of my life. I can't believe it. Like, you know, you, you just say, okay, we're, we're leftovers again. We're, I don't, I, you name the thing that you hate about your life. And the, the, the deconstructor goes, what if you just started living instead of your life being something to achieve your way out of? It's just being simple, full grace that God has given you and the goodness of that. And so if that's your singleness in the season, if that is you, you guys are in the process of trying and, and you can't have, if you've lost family, whatever you're going through in this season, of the difficulties within your marriage, the difficulty with your work, what if you predicate, you move to this posture of non-achievement? In the midst of the brokenness of this world, to be sure, my life is not something to achieve my way out of, but to receive as a good gift from God. He says this in chapter 8, verse 14, but he also says in 8, 15, and 16 that the fear of God is defined by a posture of not knowing. That you just, you, you quit trying to figure everything out. And you receive this posture of, I don't have God in my pocket. I don't have this dial of devotion. I don't have this genie that I, that there is actually God is at work in such a bigger and cosmic way that I can't even wrap my silly little mind around. And so the proper posture for me to take is not one of always trying to figure everything out, to find God's will and everything, but simply just to move through my life trusting him, trusting that he is at work in the midst of this all. So deep breath, there's the other one. Now, what I want to close with is just some simple ways of practically how can we as a community step into smoke, out, step out of ex- smoke and mirrors and actually step into what we could call true worship or just a, a community life where we see God as God. The first is back at the beginning of chapter five, verse one, what does he say? Rather than the foolish worship, the smoke and mirrors worship, he says, guard your steps when you enter the house of the Lord. Now, a couple of things is first, the deconstructor assumes that you do enter the house of the Lord. I just, as the pastor guy, I always got to do little things like that. He assumes that there's a, a, a regular rhythm of you actually a, like being a part of the church community and gathering on a regular basis. So we'll just set that one out there for, uh, for, for some of you. For the rest of us, this language of guarding your steps when you do enter, this is language of attention and intention for who you're about to encounter. The idea is kind of he's alluding to um, Moses in the burning bush. So Moses is out with the sheep and he finds this burning bush and as he draws near, right, what is it? The voice of God speaks, take off your sandals. Where you're standing is holy ground, this guarding of his steps. He doesn't take this lightly, but there is something profound that's happening when he enters into God's space. Similarly, the deconstructor would invite us to see the Sunday gathering as the burning bush moment of our week. 
that when we come, we bring an expectation that God will speak. And man, I, there is, a, there is a, a nuance here that I don't want to lose, but there is something to be said for the fact that God meets us in our expectations of how he will meet us. And for so many of us, we just play the moralistic therapeutic deism thing, and God is okay to slowly chip away at that. But for those of us that come with a posture of expecting God to blow the socks off of us and to speak truth and to change us, that's actually what happens. Now, sometimes you do have like Paul on the road to Damascus moments where God just shows up and you don't get any say in the matter. That's, that's a little more rare. Most often, God meets us at our expectations of him. And so in guarding our steps, what this means is we move to the Sunday gathering as our burning bush moment where we come prayerfully. We come with an anticipation. We come with an expectation. We come reflecting and introspecting, looking over ourselves in the week behind us and the week before us. I, I think about, I mean, you, you know, if you had like a date with somebody, I remember when Aaron and I were, my wife and now, we, we, when we were first dating, if I had like, we were going out like, you know, tomorrow or something like that, you know, the night before, I'm just like, I'm getting out the outfit. I'm like, okay, so this, I'm like coordinating everything. I'm like, what do these shoes say about the kind of person that I am? Are these, is this, are these trustworthy shoes, right? Are these like faithful shoes, okay? Like I'm laying all that out and I'm thinking over the whole date. I'm like, okay, so we're gonna go here and like, okay, so the reservation's been put, like I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking it all through because of why an intention and a priority for that and then like how often am I just like into church on Sundays, just like, okay, hanging out. And I just, I have such a low view of it. And, and I, I don't think we can be surprised then when that's what we receive out of Sundays. To have this expectation that this is our burning bush moment on Sundays when we gather, this is when God meets us and speaks to us. And so that can be prayer on the way in. That can be anticipation as I'm going to bed before in the night before. That can be coming early to be a part of our pre-service prayer time as a way of anticipating and setting our hearts. That can simply be, and here we go, cultural moment for collective in particular, actually showing up to church on time and believing that every single song that we sing and every moment that we're together and those small ways of greeting each other are moments in which the burning bush moment of God's spirit as met and, and seen in his people is meeting us and working within us. Not to shame anybody here, but I think to set an expectation. What does my posture and the way that I respond to the burning bush moment in my life actually say about the way that I relate to God? Annie Dillard, and the quote that you're gonna, I'm praying, is hoping, thinking about as you come into Sundays from now on. She says this, does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday afternoon. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. As Eugene Peterson put in that subversive spirituality book, he continued in a similar quote saying that in his, his understanding, what we should have is kind of, you know, when you walk into like um, an electricity, you know, set, they've got all of these warning signs, you know, or, or, you know, beware like nuclear stuff on the side of buildings or gas, a flammable liquid. And she said, we need something like that on, on the front of all of our churches, church buildings, that when you walk in, there's a sign that just says, beware of God. In the sense that you come into this, you have, you have no reason for being surprised if your whole life gets turned upside down while you're here. And so I think that that's part of guarding our steps is we come with an expectation that God is about to do something with us when we gather on Sundays rather than us walking in and expecting 
you know, this just to be kind of our, our little, you know, feel good about ourselves for the week ahead time. He continues in chapter five, verse one, not only do our God our steps, he says, we draw near to listen. This goes back to Eugene Peterson's word on a posture of not knowing that I put a death to my assumptions that I have everything figured out. And when I come on Sunday, I stand before the scriptures and we stand as a gathered community and we say, spirit, speak. And would you, like the psalmist says in Psalm 47, would you, dig, would you take a shovel and dig ears into the side of our head? Help us to hear what you are saying. Open our ears to hear you. And so this is part of what we do with our Sunday preaching. This is part of our integrated Bible study where not only do we preach, but we read the passage before and the week ahead. We discuss it in our discipleship groups as we are opening our ears with a posture of God speaks through his word and we wanna hear that. And so we come setting aside our assumptions and we say, God, we want you to speak through a word. As a side, I, this is 100% the most like, terrifying a- aspect of, of my job. I really like Bible nerd stuff. The fact that part of my job is standing up here on a regular basis and basically saying, thus saith the Lord, is absolutely terrifying to me. And here's the thing, I want to be able to say for me or for for Lorenzo or Isaac or whenever we have someone guest preaching with us is that you can genuinely take this as a listen, God is speaking moment. And so I, this is my little like addendum moment to add something here. I want you to hear how prayerful, how slow, how thoughtful the process is so that we can genuinely give you something and say, thus saith the Lord. And no, I'm not gonna say that. Um, I'll just make an addendum that that, that is why the, the main priority within the Sunday gathering of the preaching of God's word should not be cute little tripey, silly things that the preacher brings up to make you feel good about yourself, but, a, but an exposition of the scriptures because that's what we're here to do is to listen to God and not, you know, somebody with really cool sneakers and aviator glasses. The invitation here is for God to speak and for us to listen. And and that should be the primary reason of why. This is a burning bush moment, not a TED talk. Now, similarly, 5 verse 1, when he says draw near to listen, the word listen in Hebrew is this word shema. And what's really fun about the Hebrew word shema in Hebrew is uh, Hebrew doesn't have a different word for listen and a different word for obey. They're the same word. For you to listen to something is to obey it. And for you to obey something is the fact that you've listened to it. Some of you had parents that growing up, they would look at you and like, you're hearing me, but you're not listening. And what they meant by that is, you're not obeying me. And similarly in Hebrew, the whole point of us drawing near to listen is for us to not just listen and hear, but to shema, to put into action and obey and live. Two, as the deconstructor says, pay what we vow. That if we agree with what we're hearing within the scriptures, we're singing songs of dedication, that that actually means something from Monday to Saturday. That we become, as James wrote in the New Testament, doers and not just hearers of the word. He talks about those who hear the word but don't do it are people who go and they look in the mirror and they see a picture of themselves and then they walk away and completely forget what they look like. They have short-term memory loss. And he calls for us to work what we hear down into our bones to apply and to obey. And our discipleship groups is the primary way that we do this as a community. You can do this individually to be sure, but the secret sauce is when we start doing this as a community together. And then the last one, five verse two, is we let our words be few. We pray simply. Now for some of us, this seems like let your words be few is like shut up, don't bug God. I want you to hear that what is rooted in this is by simple prayers is our prayers are rooted in trusting awe rather than manipulative uh, repetition. 
So repetition is always when something's not working. You know, when your Instagram's down and you keep pulling to refresh and it won't load, you keep doing it. It's repetition because it's proving itself to not be trustworthy and faithful in that moment. The things that you find trustworthy, you don't have to repeat yourself. And, and the whole point here is God is the one who's in heaven. You can trust him with what you're saying. He's not like your server where you're like, can I get the ketchup by the way? Like, you know, and he, whenever you're ready, you know, you just end up kind of giving up. You're like, we just don't have ketchup on this table anymore. Or you start stealing it from other people's tables. No, just me. Okay, cool. The whole point here is what he says by letting your words be few in prayer is for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Now this might sound deus, but this comes right after he just said, when you come to the house of God, when you draw near to God. So God is not simply this deist absent God, but what he is saying is you don't have to nag him like this butler. You can trustingly give him what you pray for. Jesus extends the basis for simple trusting prayer in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus said, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, the hypocrites, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. We can let our prayers be simple, our words be few, not just because God is in heaven, but because he's our father in heaven. And so we can bring a trusting God, this is what I'm working with. I don't need to wax eloquently and start using like King James, like the thouest goddess, like start praying with these big long prayers or even these super energetic feverish prayers that like the more energetic I am, the more God's gonna listen to me. I can bring simple prayers, trusting that my father is in heaven and he listens and he knows and I can trust him with that. This is one of the things I love about our pre-service prayer times and our prayer nights is more than half of it is us just sitting and listening giving what Pastor Lorenzo refers to as pithy prayers of just, God, thank you. God, would you help us? God, we, we need you in this season. God, would you meet this you know, particular need? Just simple prayers, but most of it is just listening. And there's a, an importance here of, of that simplicity within our prayers is the, the goodness of the simple prayer of the busy mother that's just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Or more often the busy mother that's just like, help, 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 help. There is something about the simplicity of prayers that reveals the depth of what's going on when we don't feel like we have to pretend before our Father, but we can simply bring our simple prayers and trust that we will be heard. This is one of the things that we've been trying to do, you know, with our little ones as we've been raising and teaching them to pray is, um, you know, there's the Lord's Prayer, which is an incredible resource. It's like how Jesus taught us to pray, and so I would definitely send you to that. But one of the things that we've been doing with Emma and Arlo at night, and Arlo's only got the first word down, is simple, just this prayer of just, God, love you, thank you, sorry, help. And then normally we add good dreams, no bad dreams. Amen. Yes, 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 yes. Which is uh, Emma's translation of what uh, amen means. And so the whole invitation here is, is learning to do simple prayers where we just gotta love you. God, in the midst of everything that's going on, thank you. God, would you help in the midst of all that I'm carrying right now? God, I'm sorry in the midst of all of the mess of who I am. And so God, would you just, would you help? Amen. Yes, 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 yes. Maybe good dreams, no bad dreams as well. See, these are the sort of simple elements that are found within a people who live their lives with God truly at the center. They don't see themselves. They don't see God as a cosmic butler. They don't see him as a, as a, as a genie at a distance. They see him as the present father who knows and is with them. And so they come with an expectation for the burning bush moments on Sunday. They open their ears and they open their lives to hear and receive from him. And then when they bring their prayers, they're able to do this simply because it's done boldly. And so in a generation that has found the God of moralistic therapeutic deism as pathetic, 
I think a community who finds ourselves as a people who fear God, who orient our lives around who he is and what he's done rather than who we are and what we want to do, we find that we don't just give God lip service, but an embodied worship of deep reverence and awe at the God who has claimed us and made us and is with us. And the hope is what I believe will be one of the greatest evangelistic things that we'll find within our community where people start wanting to follow Jesus is when they find a community of people who actually are. There's 1 Corinthians 14 says that these people being in the midst of a people who take God's presence seriously is they will fall on their face, they will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And, and I think that's the sort of community that we want to foster here. These, uh, this church community that our Sunday gatherings are these little burning bush moments. Let's pray.